Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome to the third part in my coverage of the 1992 Sydney River McDonald's murders. In the last episode, our guest Fonce Jessam walked us through the police investigation that followed this act of mass murder. We heard about the false arrests, the many interviews, the chance discovery of evidence, their dramatic takedown and arrests of the trio, and ultimately, we heard the confessions made by those responsible for pulling the trigger swinging the shovel, and stabbing the knife. But despite everything we've heard so far, there's still a lot more to this story. The trials and everything that's happened after them are stories all on their own. And that's what we're about to get into. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we'll continue to discuss the Sydney River McDonald's murders. When we jump back into the story, we'll pick up from the point the trio has made their confessions. Now, with the with the three having confessed and been arrested, we're now getting into the trial. Can you can you just describe what you recall from from the three trials? I believe they were all charged. Uh, all trials were done separately. Yep. Um, Derek was up first, and it was like no trial I had ever covered, and I'd covered easily a dozen murder trials in that courthouse by then. Thank God, because my relationship with the sheriff's office was such that they knew they could trust me. Um, all of us reporting in Sydney at that point had, had good reputation with the sheriffs, good working relationship. Um, so they worked with us despite um, the heightened security that had been put in place. Because on the on the day of the arrest and the first court appearance of these three guys, almost a year earlier, because it took a year for the first case to get to trial, um, there were hundreds of people outside the courthouse yelling and cursing and, and condemning them and so security was a serious concern. Threats had been made that they were going to be shot. They were never going to get to trial. This was just the frustration and anger that was was evident in Cape Breton at the time. Friends of some of the families had made threats. Um, so security in the courthouse was extreme. Uh, the families were all there. There had to be a section of the courtroom set aside for them. Um, the emotion in the building was tangible. Was, it was like the, the humidity that we're feeling outside now. You walk outside and it hits you in the face. Well, that's what the emotion was like in the old Sydney courthouse when Derek Wood went to trial. You couldn't help but feel it when you walked in because of the presence of the families. And it was going to be their second opportunity to see Derek Wood, but their first opportunity to see justice because he had gone through a preliminary inquiry. Um and there was a huge model placed inside the, the courtroom of the restaurant itself. Uh, a lot of money was spent on this prosecution to make sure that the prosecuting attorneys uh, had every weapon possible to to get through these trials. And they're to be credited as well. I mean, Ken Haley, Brian Willison, and Mark Chisholm out of Halifax, they spent a year doing nothing but work these cases. Because the reality is they had nothing. Each lawyer was going to try and get 
for whatever reason he could, the confession's thrown out because that's what defense lawyers do. Mm-hmm. They, they try to find something the interrogating officers did that's not quite to the letter of the law or the Constitution. And if they can get the confession thrown out, any evidence gathered after that confession as a result of that confession is fruit of the poison tree. It's, it can't be introduced. So um, the prosecutors knew that was going to be the big fight in each case, but they also had to build as much evidence just in case they lost those. So these three guys worked really hard. Each of them picked a case um, and worked it individually, but they also worked specific parts of each other's cases because the workloads on all three were so big. Um, So they came ready to play ball. Um, The two top lawyers from the legal aid office in Sydney um, were representing Derek. Um, They had their theory worked out, and they were ready to attack that confession. Because getting back to the, the confession, he finally did make that moment when he picked up the paper and went guilty, guilty, not guilty, guilty, not sure. Um... He had asked to see, he said, I think I want to talk to my lawyer. And this was after he'd been in custody for a very long time and they were getting close. And the officer said, are you sure you're going to be able to get him? And he said, what time is it? And he said, five o'clock in the morning. Well, and then he continued the conversation. So the question was going to be, was he denied counsel? The argument for the Crown was going to be a week earlier. He had met with his counsel twice. He had met with his counsel early that night. This was like 12 hours later, but he did meet with him early that night when he was in custody. Um, That he had access to counsel. He knew he could get a phone if he wanted to. It had been proved a week earlier when he was in custody. So that was their argument, which obviously ultimately carried the day. Mm -hmm. So the confession was allowed. But that was sort of the tilting point in his trial. That was what had the family sick leading up, you know, during the first early days as these arguments in voir dire before the jury was ever present were, were uh, argued before the judge about whether they could allow the confession. This was something that, that enraged Neil Burroughs brothers. Uh, they were infuriated. They didn't understand it. This guy confessed to killing these people. Why are these silly rules being brought in now? They just couldn't follow what was happening, which is typical of families drawn into this horrific thing we call a justice system. I wish somebody would change the name because really it's built to make sure an innocent man doesn't go to jail. That's the sole focus. It's not about justice. It's, it's about finding facts, not truth. Um, truth is facts and facts taken in proper context. The justice system looks at the facts only and, and ignores context. Um, and families of murder victims find that out very painfully, very quickly, that it's not about their dead child or their dead husband or dead wife. It's about the person sitting there with the sheriffs. It's making sure that he or she is not an innocent man or woman going to jail. And this was killing the families of the McDonald's victims. They just couldn't handle it. I help them the way I traditionally do families. In always, it was my habit to become an aid to the families because this was before they had the victim services counselors who would go to court with the families. The McDonald's families are the reason the victim services uh, office exists in Nova Scotia because they were thrown into this thing without any real support or without any, anyone other than me or any other journalist. They, they happened to, it turned out they, they chose me. Um, 
probably because TV was, I was in their living room every day. You get that sense. People think they know you mm-hmm. um, because you're so familiar. So I became their source of explanation during the breaks, during the lunches. They still all would not go on camera, but all of the families had agreed when they made the agreement with the police and the prosecutors that they would not go on camera or talk to any reporter because what they saw, say could cause the trial to go off, it, it cause a mistrial. And that's a terrible thing that police and prosecutors say to families. It's a huge weight to put on them, and it's not true. Mm. And you slowly, as a journalist, win them over if, if, if you're a good human being and you help them out. And I gradually did, and they, they began to speak to me slowly. And the big hurdle, again, in that first one was the, 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 the day that the judge said, yes, we're going to have this confession as part of our evidence. Live with it. Um, so they were all celebrating that and asking me what that would mean, but still not talking about it on camera. Um, but then the real trial began. The jury was there, and Derek Wood was presenting himself in the way that that he and his lawyers wanted him to be presented in front of the jury, which was with his head down, his hands clasped, very sorrowful, um, very quiet. Uh, and he was a quiet, shy guy, so it wasn't hard for him to pull that off. He didn't interact with his counsel much. And, and it's my habit in trial to watch the accused, uh, to try and find a tidbit, to report on something, some reaction, a tear, a, a giggle, anything that I could report on. And what I found in Derek during that first trial was when the jury and judge were present, the shy, introverted sorrowful young man was there when they were out of the room during breaks he would laugh and joke with his lawyers and you know he wouldn't talk to me i offered him opportunities i always speak to the accused can i talk to you for a second no you know sometimes it's yes you know i've had many accused talk to me during trials and i got great information from them but he didn't play ball but it infuriated my cameraman at the time gary mansfield because he was seeing both sides of Derek, but he was only able to cat capture sorrowful Derek when he get out of the truck to enter the courthouse handcuffed head down very sorrowful look when he'd catch him walking in and out in the hallway head down very sorrowful look but he wanted that laughing Derek shot and one day he got it he just (laughs) it's one of the funnier moments between he and I during the trial he wanted to hide behind me we called Gary Moose he was a very, very big boy, a weightlifter, huge, 6'2", 6'3", carrying 260 very well. I'm 150 maybe, you know, 5'9", and he wanted to hide behind me with a beta cam on his shoulder. It was just one, it was not going to happen, right? So what he did was he, he, uh, he just figured out a way to, to ambush Derek. When the judge and jury were out, he was allowed to shoot through the doorway. So he hid and waited until he, was, he had me there to say, yeah, he's laughing. And he just jumped into the doorway and got the shot. And you could see the moment. And he used that repeatedly in his reporting to show the difference where he's laughing, looks up, sees the camera and faded into sorrowful, head down, hands crossed, Derek. So that was a moment that the families really appreciated seeing on TV. And it it made my cameraman an easier man to work with because he wasn't grumpy all the time. Um, But it gave the, uh, the audience, the viewers their first chance to see that this guy we've been seeing every night who looks so sorry, maybe not so sorry. And then as the evidence began to come out and the horrific, horrific tape 
that crime scene tape that I'll never forget um, that still had Neil Burroughs and Donna Warren in it that was played and that I had to report on and describe. They then could put him in context of that. And clearly that didn't affect the jury in any way because they, they didn't see it. But it it made the story, it made it easier for me to tell the story about this kid and his possible involvement and what the evidence was suggesti- suggesting that he was the one who did the most mm-hmm. um, because they saw the smile, they saw the laugh under these circumstances and that the immediate false reaction when he saw the camera. So that was a moment that helped us get that little kernel of truth out. And th- it almost felt at that point in the coverage that things were beginning to shift because there was a lot, a lot of concern among the families, the Burroughs family in particular, about the argument being presented and the questions being asked by Art Mullen, the defense attorney, uh, or Alan Nicholson, his partner, about timing. They were presenting the argument that it wasn't possible for Derek to be inside the restaurant because he couldn't get to King's Convenience and make the two phone calls if they were able to accept that the first phone call was actually made to the ambulance and not the RCMP because the ambulance it wasn't recorded, but the dispatcher said, "Yeah, I got two calls. I don't know who the other one was." Uh, the taxi dispatcher I knew, and somebody called, so there was reason to believe he'd made that call. So they had a rough timing on that. They had witnesses that said they saw him there by one fifteen. Um, so they were arguing there's no way he could have been inside the restaurant and been there in time to call. So that was scaring the Burroughs family. They were also the reason that tape that I mentioned a moment ago was played. They wanted the jury to see all of that blood. And there was a lot, of, in particular around Neil Burroughs, but also Donna Warren in the office, there was a lot of blood. And Jimmy Fagan, where he went down, there was a lot of blood. Where, where Arlene went down, the straws and everything on the floor were covered in blood. And they wanted the jury to understand that this young man was in police custody that night and there was no blood on his clothes and no blood on his shoes. How could he possibly have been in there? That was their defense. It wasn't him, that he just held the door open and ran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the families were really worried. And the jury went out for a long time on that one. And when that verdict came in, it was like an electric wire flowing, you know, electric current flowing through that courtroom. The relief, the tears, the 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 moaning, the crying of the families, the celebration. One of the brothers, Neil Burroughs' brother, ran outside to finally see him being led into the van as a guilty man and and to, to threaten him openly and screaming, and we captured that. And I think that was the day my relationship with the families was ultimately cemented. By then, I had gradually befriended all of them, um, even Arlene McNeil herself, who, who arrived. Um, I was able to chat with her. She was in a wheelchair, of course, but and her mother and I had uh, grown close. But two of the, the mothers pushed my microphone away when I came in and just hugged me and cried. They drew me. That had never happened to me before in covering a trial. I developed relationships, close relationships with families, and I've had people cry and reach out to me, but not embrace me and thank me. There was nothing to thank me for. I had simply an- answered their questions, but I realized at that point that they were taking me to a place that I didn't want to go as a journalist because there were two more trials to cover and that I would have to be careful about my relationship because these two elderly women in particular had uh, a fondness for me that went beyond what it should have. Um, It felt good. 
but it felt very strange. And I knew it wasn't the relationship a reporter should have with people he was reporting on. Uh, and it took the wind out of me. But we did manage, I did manage to, to regroup and grab the microphone and get a clip from every family, you know, which was, was the ultimate victory for me. From nobody speaking to, on the day of the verdict, everybody spoke. But the prosecutors spoke quickly and then had to go to their office, and they were crying. Even the prosecutors who had, who had prosecuted all the worst crimes in Cape Breton before and Mark Chisholm in Halifax, um, this was such an emotional ordeal, and they had so much of themselves invested in it that they had to leave, and, and they couldn't handle the emotion that was being expressed in the hallway by these families. They just couldn't handle it being present. They were crying. So they had to leave. It was pretty intense. Now, with uh, with Woods convicted, I'm, I'm guessing the Muse and McNeil trials probably came quickly after. Yep. Uh, could you just describe those? Two trials? Muse trial, if memory serves me, was virtually the next day. It had to be put off. Um, because the jury went, ran so long that uh, they just the prosecutors weren't ready. Some of the some of the exhibits that they needed in the Muse trial were still locked away, and Wood's lawyers made it clear he was going to appeal. So those exhibits belonged to the Wood case. So they had to get the paperwork done to release those for use again, with the promise that they would be put back and available for any appeal going forward in the Wood case. So they just weren't ready. The the system couldn't keep up. So it was, it was put off a week at least for the Muse trial. The big difference in, in the Darren Muse trial was Darren Muse. There was no head down, quiet, you know, guy. There was a cocky, arrogant, self-important, extremely confident guy who swaggered in and out of the courtroom. Neil Burroughs' brothers wanted a piece of that guy so badly, I wasn't sure they weren't going to try and get it. The RCMP believed they were going to try and get it because he was all about him. And why wouldn't he be? He had, you know, he had a deal on the table that nobody knew about. Um, at the very beginning of the trials, the families were promised, and I was there at the time, by, by the head prosecutor who went on to become a judge, so it wasn't his promise to carry out that there would be no deals. But... In the case of Darren, they were concerned about a police officer who had become angry with him and spoke to him aggressively. And the judge hearing the case, and there was going to be a voir dire over the admissibility again, it was all about the confession because there was no physical evidence that connected these guys to what had been collected outside. If you don't have the confession, you don't have the evidence. So um, the RCMP were genuinely concerned that this judge was only going to listen to the questioning. It was his habit not to listen to the answers, not to hear the voice of the accused, because in voir dire, the argument over the admissibility of a confession is not about what's in the confession. It's about the behavior of the police officers who gathered that confession. And this judge was one of Nova Scotia's judges. There were several who were in the habit of, I only want to hear what the police had to say. And without hearing the arrogant, cocky, confident responses from Muse, 
to hear this police officer yelling at him and telling him he hated him and didn't believe him and he was a liar and no good, um, venting his frustration, and this was a, a big police officer, physically large, um, and Darren Muse was not. He wasn't small, but he wasn't big. He wasn't Freeman McNeil. Um, so the RCMP were really worried that if this judge chose to only hear the questions, he'd get to that point and say, no, that's intimidation. I don't want to hear any more. Anything said after this point in the interrogation is inadmissible. Mm -hmm. There was a real chance. It might not have happened. We'll never know. Because his lawyer um, had convinced Darren that it was in his best interest to plead down. Second degree, try and make a deal, try and get out, you know, because second degree murder, of course, you can get out in as little as 10 years, as much as 25. It's all about the parole then. First degree murder, automatic parole to 25. So there's, a, there's 15 years on the table between a first degree conviction and a second degree plea. But the RCMP held a meeting in the courthouse early in the process of the trial during the voir dire and begged the families. The families knew the offer was on the table, but the prosecutors said no. They were sticking with the prosecution office promise, no deals. Mm -hmm. They wanted first degree. So the RCMP, the, the leaders of the investigation and some senior officers called all the families into a separate courtroom adjacent at the end of the day and explained their worry and explained what second degree murder would be and that they would definitely get him in jail and that they could trust the prosecutors to argue for the maximum. So not all of the family members agreed, but ultimately a vote was taken and most of the family members agreed. So the next day, when they were about to begin, um, Joel Pink, who was the lawyer who, who was representing Darren Muse, um, said, Your Honor, would you read the charges again? And the judge immediately recognized what was happening here, so he said, Mr. Muse, stand up. You do understand that anything you've been told, anything you may or may not have been promised, does not involve me. I am not bound to any deal. But, of course, Joel Pink prepared him for that, and he said, yes, sir. He said, you know, how do you plead uh, to the first-degree murder? And he, he, not guilty, to the included charge of second-degree murder, guilty. So he pled guilty to second-degree murder in the case of Neil Burroughs, not guilty to Jimmy Fagan, where he was also charged with first-degree murder for handing the gun to Freeman. But the only way they were going to be able to prove that would be if Freeman testified, and he wasn't going to. So they got him on robbery. They got him on uh, unlawful confinement of Donna Warren downstairs and on second-degree murder. So then it became his trial became all about the vagaries of the justice system, first and second degree, how much time. Ultimately, the prosecution service did a brilliant job. If if you were there, you could have believed 12 to 15 years was was likely because Joel Pink brought a lot of, of precedent evidence of cases that seemed more brutal, if you can imagine that, um, where that was the range of parole eligibility. Only one Canadian criminal in history, and he was a recidivist who had, had uh, committed many crimes, had ever been given the maximum 25. Um, but that's what the prosecution was, was asking the judge for. In the end, the judge gave him 20, which was very, very, very much on the high side and, uh, and not what Joel Pink expected, nor what Darren Muse expected. Um, and the families were satisfied with that. They wanted 25, but they, by the end of the arguments, they were worried about 12. So 20 felt pretty good.
Now, as far as uh, McNeil's trial, Wood already convicted, then Muse convicted. How did the events unfold during McNeil's? Well, that was that was a different case entirely because the courts agreed that he couldn't get a fair trial, a jury trial in Sydney. Um, because after the first trial of Derek Wood, um, uh, Joel Pink petitioned the court to have his case heard by judge alone because he believed all of the publicity around the Wood case was just too much, and the judge agreed. So Hart, it was unlikely the Supreme Court was over, going to overrule that judge's ruling and say that Freeman McNeil could. So the judge ruled that, yes, he would be tried in Halifax. And as fate would have it, um, after the Muse trial, I was offered a job in Halifax by the network. They wanted to move me from Sydney to the Halifax newsroom, and I decided the uh, the economy of Cape Breton being what it was, my children would have a better chance of staying, you know, at home and working where we lived if we took the job in Halifax, so we left. And I was up here job hunting, listening to the uh, news on CBC radio the day I knew that the ruling was going to come in on Freeman McNeil, and uh, they said the date that his trial would start in Halifax. And I just smiled at my wife at the time because it was my first day to start work in the Halifax newsroom. So I knew I'd be covering that trial. And that's, I mean, I would get in, I wouldn't have to adjust to the new newsroom, the new environment. It would have to adjust adjust to me because I was going in with both guns blaring, blazing on the very first day with the top story. And it was the top story for the first week or so as the trial went ahead. It was interesting. His defense was one of PTSD. They had him interviewed by a psychologist uh, who determined that, remember in his statement, he blacked out. He didn't remember what he really did. And uh, things that had happened afterward, they decided that they, their best defense was PTSD which was blown out of the water completely by another forensic psychologist who said it was ridiculous to think that he could possibly have PTSD when the first letter stands for post. You can't get PTSD during an event. It, it you know, it begins to appear much later, mm-hmm. um, you know, three, six months down the road or even later than that. Um, so the jury didn't buy any of that. And uh, the emotional explosion that came with the verdict in that trial exceeded the emotion in the Wood trial, surprisingly. And it was a member of Jimmy Fagan's family, his sister, uh, lost control and began to shake and shake and shake and shake. And as he was being let out, she yelled to her brothers to get him, get him, get him. And the police seized her and began to drag her out. And she got into, not the police, pardon me, the sheriff's officers. She got into a fight with them. And she was being dragged out then outside the courtroom where the cameras were. And her fight was because she didn't want to be seen by the cameras. And she had managed to avoid any publicity or any comment. That She was a very conservative woman, as were Jimmy's brothers. Yet she exploded and she became very much a part of the story. And then that spread like fire through the room. And I remember looking at Freeman's mother, who attended all of it. And she was just crushed because... The mother of of one of the other victims went over and began to scream at her and the police had to stand in front of her and get her out of there. But it it was just a circus. It was crazy, the emotion, because they had been put through hell for three years. You know, our justice system is not one. I would if my advice given many times afterward to the families of murder victims um, who I came to know immediately in the aftermath of a murder, because you do. Um, you interview family members and, and talk to them is don't go. 
don't attend the trial. Send an uncle or a cousin that can tell you each day what's happening, but don't put yourself through that because there are so many ups and downs and possibilities and it's not about the dead person. It's about the person left alive. And I learned that lesson from watching these families go through the grindhouse that was our justice system over three years and becoming very close to them in that process and seeing what it did to them and, you know, seeing how it changed the justice system. You know, the victim services became a very important component of all trials in the future. And I believe that's in part because of the explosion, in very big part because of the explosion at the end of Freeman McNeil's trial, the explosion of emotion, because it happened in Halifax at the main courthouse and, you know, the the judges realized, you know, we can't have families losing control like this. Why don't they have someone? And that's why the victim services and victim liaison program was developed. Now, when all was said and done in McNeil's trial, what was the sentence he was delivered? And what was he found guilty of? First degree murder. Automatic 25. He got convicted. I'm mistaken. Uh, yeah, he, he got a first, but he got a second on Neil Burroughs. That was second degree. They did. They determined that the clubbing he gave may not have contributed to the death and he might not have known. Or the language in the, the, the criminal code is you administer force that is likely to cause death and you are reckless as to whether or not death occurs and that'll get you a second degree. So they the jury found him guilty of second degree. It was a pointless except for precedent, it was pointless, but the jury recommended the full 25. So he's the second Canadian ever to get 25 on a second degree, but he already had the 25 on the first degree of Jimmy Fagan. So really, there are no consecutive sentences in Canada. As I like to say, the first murder will cost you, the rest are free, because you're never, ever given a consecutive sentence, and you don't get any more jail time for anybody you kill after the first. It's, But also, in Canada, life sentence is a life. Even when you're released on parole, you're still guilty of murder. And if you do anything, that murder sentence is immediately clamped down and and you're put back in jail on the murder. If you violate your parole, you return on your murder sentence because life is life in Canada. Now, with with all the trials said and done, all three men found guilty, put away for, in Wood McNeil's case, 25 years, in Musa's, I believe you said 20. Yeah. Uh, how did McDonald's deal with the stigma attached to the, to the building? Interesting question, and one I'm asked here in Halifax, but never home. And that's because there was no stigma at home. Um, people who followed the story closely away from Cape Breton, to them the only image of that restaurant was the one surrounded by police cars at night with yellow tape. But the restaurant, I knew Garfield Lewis well. He owned it. It returned to regular sales very quickly. It went back to what it was. It has since been torn down, but not because of this, simply because a a larger retail complex was being built down below. It was in a really bad spot to begin with on a very steep hill. Mm-hmm. So the new owner tore it down and built a, a new one down below in, in the parking lot where the other businesses were. But um, people went back there and, and returned to the restaurant. Some early on uh, no doubt went there out of some disturbed sense of just wanting to be inside the restaurant where it happened but you know 
that didn't last long. And Garfield told me within a year his sales were back to to what they had been prior to. As far as McDonald's corporate, it was very responsible after the murders, brought counselors in, set them up in a hotel in Sydney to deal with all of the workers and their families, um, you know, did everything it could to help them along because it had learned in the the uh, mass killing in the San Ysidro, California McDonald's that, that that's the way to deal with it. So, And they didn't want it to become something that stigmatized their employees or their restaurant. Uh, they certainly didn't cooperate with me. They didn't give interviews. They didn't want to talk about it, but they were very good to their employees and the families of their employees. Looking back now, 25 years later, uh, do you believe the community is healed? <sighs> certainly the families have not. Um, the greater, the younger generation, sure. Yeah. To them, it didn't happen. Um, but nobody who was there then as an adult forgets the Sydney Cape Breton before McDonald's and the Sydney Cape Breton after McDonald's. It was, I hate to be trite or use a cliche in, in, in connection to this story, but it was sort of the end of innocence for Cape Breton. This was local grown boys um, with no trouble with the law prior to this. They were capable of this kind of vicious, horrific violence and there was nowhere to look but home. It was homegrown. Um, it changed the view a lot of people had of home. And, and as I, again, I'm not the right person to ask that because I remind people of this case. I go home and people, you know, where's your book? I can, can't get your book anymore. It's hard to find. Or, or, or they still, what, what's going on with those guys in jail? They think I visit them. I mean, so for me to think that, that they're over it, no, I don't. Because whenever I'm there, they're reminded. Um, but certainly life went on. It changed the prosecution service. It changed policing in Cape Breton. There are lingering effects that are felt today in the way cases are handled. Um, you know, the the justice system and both arms, both the, the investigative arm and the prosecutorial arm, even the defense wing, because it was handled by legal aid, they all grew up. This forced them to a level they never expected to have to, to work at. Um. Musa been out on, on parole for a period of time. The other two, it's constantly in the news that they're maybe on their way out and mm-hmm. will likely have 25 years. Uh, Freeman will. Freeman will. And Derek, I believe, it's been extended due to crimes he committed. In prison. A threat against a jail guard. Um, he got involved in gang activity. Um, Darren Muse worked the prison system perfectly, just as he did the trial system. Um, he went in, he was the model prisoner, he took courses, he upgraded himself, he did everything he was supposed to do, so when he was eligible for day parole, he was, he was the star of the, of the, you know, theory that you can be rehabilitated. Is he? I hope so, you know. Um, he certainly convinced the parole board that he was, and he has done nothing wrong since being released. Um, Freeman McNeil only recently, a matter of weeks ago, was granted uh, escorted passes into the community, which is the first step, because in May it'll be 25 years and he will be up for full parole. So the process is escorted passes, unescorted passes, a, a group home where you're allowed out certain times if you can get a job. So they're easing him into the community now. The family's fought that, but he's done nothing wrong in prison to prevent that. 
they can, if as is the case with with Derek Wood, extend if you misbehave in prison, or if they believed he he was likely, you know, if he became involved in gang activity. But he didn't. He he. There was no indication he was the model prisoner Darren was, but I think he learned from Darren, and in his last years, started working toward next year. Because remember, these are young men. You know, he's he's going to be what forty six when he gets out. That's not old. You know, it's a heck of an old age to start your life, uh, but it's not old. Now, your book, Murder at McDonald's, is such a complete telling of the event. Can you talk a bit about the work he did to, to put that together? The book that almost never was. The last thing I did or thought I would do with this case, because it, it took a toll on me, I admit that. Um, it was It's difficult to get that close to that much emotion and not carry some of it, especially by the third year of, of becoming close to the families. To see them in that kind of anguish was difficult. Um, but... There was so much interest in this story, the network wanted a half-hour special. Um, so by then, as, as I stated, I was living in Halifax, so I went back home and convinced the families to do one more television interview and interviewed Arlene, who was in rehab, and uh, went back to the restaurant and did a walkthrough myself on camera, went to the graveyard with... with um, Olive Warm, where she went every single day to Donna's grave to put together a half-hour documentary that was my final stamp. Mm. That documentary aired on a Sunday. On Monday at work, I got a call from a publisher. We want a book. Um, now, my ambition in life has always been to be a writer. I get into journalism because you could get paid to write. Mm. I, I want to be a writer. Um, Yet, I didn't want to write this book. I said, can you give me some time to think about it, which was not what the publisher expected. You offer somebody a publishing contract, they jump at it, especially a journalist, because we all think we've got a book in us. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to write it. Um, And I was looking for a a gentle way to get out. But the publisher, Dorothy Blythe, at the time did say, well, if you don't, I'll find somebody willing to go into Sydney and just start from the beginning. And that played on me because I knew if I was a reporter sent to Washington... And by then I had traveled a lot and, and had to un, undo, sort of find this story in book form. I would have to really be an invasive presence with the families, mm-hmm. um, not just the police and the court, but the families, because they were the story. I knew the story. Mm-hmm. So, But I still gave it a couple of days, and a good friend, uh, Greg Boone, who was my colleague in the newsroom in Sydney for so long, kept pushing that somebody's going to come in here and start knocking over gravestones, come in here being Sydney. He was still back in Sydney. He said, I'm not going to write it. You know I'm not going to write it. They're going to get somebody who is going to... So he he really pushed hard on what he knew was my guilt. So I finally said, fine, I'll write it. And I told the families I was going to write it. And I said, can we talk one more time? And that'll be the end of it. So I went back and dug deeper and, and asked more questions. And... I had already obtained the tapes from the police and all of the exhibits and the written statements as part of that half-hour documentary. So I had everything. Yeah. You know, I just had to ask some questions of the families that I hadn't and to look at it differently as an author would and to write it. And, you know, interestingly enough, to talk about the way this case was treated here 
the publisher released it, but there was no book launch. It was not in the catalog. It was not advertised in any way. It went crazy. It was a multiple times a bestseller. It kept selling out. Um, it sold like hotcakes, literally. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't keep it in stores. It was it was crazy the way it sold. Showed the appetite for it, but it was still sort of the the ugly stepchild of the publishing house. They never put anything behind it ever. Um, they didn't. Because until then they had never published anything like it, and they didn't. It didn't fit with their image of themselves. Um, so it succeeded in spite of the publisher who wanted it, not because of the publisher who wanted it. But then, interestingly enough, life being what it is, um, twenty-three or four years later, it got the attention of Otto Penzler, who is a legend in both true crime and crime fiction circles out of New York. He owns the Mysterious Bookstore in New York, which he claims is the oldest uh, mystery crime-only bookstore in the United States. Um, He's published a number of anthologies of noir fiction, Chicago noir, Boston noir, New York noir, L.A. noir. Um, He's a very big player in the crime fiction and true crime field. Um, He picked it up. I owned all rights to it because it had been out of print for 15 years, um, and he wanted to make it an ebook. Well, there was no clause in the contract that I signed back in the 90s anyway, because ebooks were a fantasy, weren't they? Mm. We didn't have an internet, let alone an ebook. Um, So he has now put it out through Mysterious Press in New York only weeks ago, uh, and it is beginning to garner interest again all these years later. You're here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about it, and the book is being sold worldwide. Um, as an ebook, at any place you can get an ebook, it's available on iTunes, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo. Um, and I checked with the publisher yesterday, and they say it's encouraging the way it's starting out. Um, so there is still interest in that story outside of Nova Scotia, where I think it's, although it's still selling here. People have told me here. I've I was contacted only last week by a um, a filmmaker producer in New York, who read it and wanted to know if he could do a spec script for my approval before he went for financing because I've turned down all offers to make it into a movie because I don't think it would be appropriate. I don't think the families need to see that, but he's writing up a spec script and my agent in New York wants to see it. So I don't know. It's kind of out of my hands now. I just let it go. Once I let auto take it, mm-hmm. it's, it's playing in the big leagues in New York and I'm not there. So, uh, I don't know. Wow. Now what comes next for you? I understand you have a new work of fiction. I do. Well, I did write another book after Murder at McDonald's, which uh, was Somebody's Daughter, mm-hmm. which is also available worldwide now in ebook. Otto took that as well. Oh, it it um, is about uh, human trafficking in Canada mm-hmm. and about a very violent pimping ring that was operating here in Halifax. Um, it did well as well. Uh, and it is now on its second journey in life as an ebook. But the, the book I'm most interested in um, is uh, the one that comes out in just a couple of weeks. Um, Disposable Souls is the title. It's the first in a crime fiction series based here in Halifax, uh, based in large part on an outlaw motorcycle gang. And one character who left the club uh, became a war hero and then a police officer. Uh, and then lands a case that kind of ties all those worlds together, and he's not quite sure where he fits. Mm-hmm. And that's where the series begins. I finished my journalism career earlier than expected, uh, although 35 years is hardly early, um, because of uh, severe CPTSD. Um, I was diagnosed years ago and continued to work, but uh, I've been told by my doctors to stay away from true crime and journalism and uh 
So the type of journalism I plan to do in, in the future is crime fiction, which really is a beautiful form of journalism because it uncovers the rocks and looks under them. I believe the best crime fiction is social commentary at the very least, but it's a form of journalism. It's showing people what's real, and that's the type of crime fiction I intend to write because it's really all I know how to do. So there you have it. Canadian justice is served. And if you can't tell, I'm rolling my eyes. With the story told, what I hope was able to come across is that this was a horrific crime that has forever changed the community I was raised in. Although it may read like a Hollywood script, this is not the story anyone wanted to play out here. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. But having said that, the story's far from over. There's going to be a bow put on this series in an extended nightcap that will be released to the premium feed shortly. I'll be joined by my occasional co-host, Aaron, and the two of us, we have a lot to get into. We'll hear some unused excerpts from this episode in which Fonts demystifies a rumor that has stuck to the story like a barnacle. That rumor being that Freeman McNeil became a millionaire in prison as the result of an inheritance and some smart investments. Also, Fonz will talk through the theoretical scenario of what may have happened had Derek not forgot his backpack at the scene of the crime. But I think the most interesting part is that I'll read and discuss a letter I received from the ringleader of this crime, Derek Wood. In the letter, Derek provides his candid thoughts on his future, his potential for release, and he gives a glimpse of his life in prison. Again, that will be released to the premium feed shortly. I hope to see you there. But before we end tonight, I got a few more things to say. First, a big thank you to Fonts Jessen for again appearing in this episode. I'd also like to thank the Toronto-based band Voxomnia, who provided the episode's musical theme. And lastly, but most importantly, a huge thank you to the listeners of Nighttime. Without you, this show would have seen the light of day many moons ago. If you want more nighttime, let me suggest the premium feed. It just costs about the price of a cup of coffee, and it gives you access to a separate feed in which the episodes are posted earlier and are done so without paid advertising. But even better than that, the premium feed also includes the additional content, like what I mentioned earlier with the nightcap. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest subscribers to that feed. Brian the Brain and Deborah. thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply telling your friends about the show, sharing the episodes. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My handle is NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and stay safe. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.
new on Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copy can on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner, only Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.